Good morning. morning. Said good morning to many of you, but not everybody. And it is good to be here this morning. And isn't it an encouragement to see the excitement in what Chris had to say concerning the salvation we have in Jesus Christ? Isn't it? The boy was preaching up here, wasn't he? Yeah. How encouraging. And that is the excitement he's speaking That's the excitement we should have uh, because of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We all know what yesterday was, correct? Ron has his hand up. We could ask him. I'm sure he knows. Uh, folks know you're, you're kind of clicking through. What was yesterday? Yeah, it was the 50th anniversary of our putting a man on the moon. July 20th, 1969. And there were three astronauts. Two of them walked on the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin. And it was Neil Armstrong who made this statement, and you already know the statement that was heard around the world. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And indeed, landing on the moon was one of mankind's greatest scientific achievements. One of our greatest achievements. Yeah. Celebrate 50 years. Now, now I have a little bit of trivia. I, I bet you did not know that Buzz Aldrin, when he walked on the moon, had communion. Did you know that? He had communion. It's some bread and some juice, and and here are the notes, actually, in his own handwriting. And he read that statement asking for a period of silence. And then he read, uh, evidently, to himself, John 15, 5, and Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever remains in me, and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Isn't that great? Yeah. A little bit of trivia we probably did not know. Uh, America's putting a man on the moon is traced back to President John F. Kennedy. In a speech, I believe it was May 25th, 1961, in a speech before Congress, he talked about future space exploration, and he set five national goals for us as a nation. And I believe the first one of those was by the end of the decade, to put a man on the moon. And so all the energies that went into that, at its peak, there were 400,000 people working on putting a man on the moon. Is that a lot of resources? 400,000 people from what I read. Putting a man on the moon, one of America's greatest achievements, one of the greatest scientific achievements. It's a high water mark for science and for America. A high water mark. And today in our passage, God speaks of the future and speaks of great things. God makes great promises to David. And these promises are a high watermark, if not the high watermark, in David's life 
and for all of salvation history. It's right now impossible for me this morning to state the significance of what we find in our passage. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So open your Bibles. You want to see it for yourself? You want to read it for yourself? Take out your notes. A pen. And my message is titled, God's Great Promises Are Great Hope. God's great promises, our great hope. Now, now I've said, if I were to write a play on the life of David, how many acts would I probably have in this play? Some four, right? Yeah. Some four acts. David's rise to prominence. Remember, he's anointed as just a teenager. Defeats Goliath, becomes very popular, but then he lives a number of years on the run because King Saul fears that this young upstart, this giant killer, is going to usurp the throne. And then David's rule as Israel's greatest king. Saul is killed, along with Jonathan on Mount Gilboa, by the Philistines. And so we find ourselves now in what act? This is a quiz. What act are we in? Act 3. No, no, we're Act 3. We'll get to Act 4 eventually. But, But now we're looking at David's rule as Israel's greatest king. 2 Samuel... Chapters 1 through 10. And there, as the book starts out, David, first of all, is ruling over Judah. With the death of Saul, he rules over the south, over Judah. With the death of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, David rules over all of Israel. He defeats the Jebusites, takes their city, makes it his capital, the city of Jerusalem. He becomes greater and greater. King Hiram of Tyre builds him a castle in Jerusalem, a house. And then David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now that should sound really familiar. Because that's where we were last Sunday, right? David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Because he wanted the presence of God. He delighted in God. He desired God. And that was the main emphasis I made. And challenged us. Is that where we're at? And then we saw, did we not? Significant part of the story, Uzzah reaching up, touching the ark, and being struck dead. And so we talked about the holiness of God. Wow. What a great passage. In our passage today, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we really have a continuation of chapter 6. David brings the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. And now he wants to build a house for it. He has been built a house by Hiram. And now David wants to build a house, we might say a temple, for the Ark of the Covenant. So that's where we're at in our passage. And so as we start in chapter 7, verse 1, you understand the context. We're at in the life of David. And notice what we read in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. So he's established. He's done a lot. That the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. 
But the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And so we read here of David expressing his desires to Nathan to build a temple. And Nathan says what to the king? Go for it. Go for it. Do what is in your mind. The Lord is with you. Do it. Great ambitions. Great desires. What is that word, however, that we so often find in Scripture that changes the tone of everything? What's the word? But. Yeah. And that's what we find in verse 4. But. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so the message comes back to David through the prophets from God. Don't think that you're the one to build me a house. All these years I've been in a tent and a tabernacle, and I've never asked anyone to build me a house, to build me a temple. And David, you're not the one. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, actually, later, it's actually First Chronicles 22, David, talking to his son Solomon, tells him why God wouldn't allow him to build the temple. Did you know that? Yeah. We read there, then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build the house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build the house of the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood, Waged great wars, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Isn't that interesting? David, you're not the man. You're a man really of warfare. You shed so much blood. I don't want you to build my temple. Your son Solomon will do that. Brian Bell, I think, has an application that is worthy of at least noting when God says no to us, and I'm just going to throw this out there and pass on, but he said just because your heart's in the right place and just because your plan is a noble one and just because your friends applaud it doesn't mean it's God's will. That's where David was. Boy, it was a noble plan. His heart was in the right place. Nathan, even the prophets said go for it, but it wasn't God's will for him to do. And so the same for us. Sometimes God is going to say no. And for reasons we may not understand, there may be noble plans, there may be grand plans, our heart may be in the right place, our friends may tell us to go for it, but the word is from God, no, not not now. Maybe never. All right, back to our passage, verse 8. God says, David, you want to do something great for me, but I'm going to do something great for you. You want to build me a house? Let me do some things for you. Notice verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name. 
like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And so with this I will that we find in verse 9, God goes on to make promises to David, telling him what he will do. David wanted to do something for God, but God turns it around and says, David, let me tell you what I will do. And in fact, if you notice, just scan down some ten times, you'll find that declaration. I will. This is what I'm going to do. First of all, for you in your lifetime and then beyond. Your lifetime and then beyond. And so notice where it goes. I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Isn't that great? These declarations. I will. And so God telling David what he will do for him in his lifetime. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to appoint, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And were we to read on and look at chapter 8, I believe we see those things becoming a reality for David and the nation. But notice verse 11 again. God gives promises to David that go beyond David's lifetime. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. The idea of house here is that of a dynasty, a kingdom. I will give you descendants. And so the idea, you wanted to make me a house, but I will make you a house. And we read, beginning with verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you're dead, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish, see that statement, I will, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is clearly talking about Solomon. But the intimations are already here that it's talking about somebody much greater, somebody beyond Solomon. And it continues on. I will be a father to him, and and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And so those promises, as they're brought from the prophet, from God, through the prophet to David, speak primarily at this point of Solomon. But the intimations are beyond. And then we read verse 16. It's the peak of the mountain. This is a high watermark. It's the crest of the wave. It's the peak of the mountain. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
How many of us have seen the movie Toy Story? Yeah, I think they have a new one out, don't they? Don't think some of you have seen it. Yeah, I see a head nodding there. There's like four of them, and and who is the lead character? At least one of them. Woody, and then who else? Buzz Lightyear, right? Yeah. And what is he known for saying? To infinity and beyond. You want to say that with me, don't you? It's just, it's just one of those phrases. Go ahead. Let's say it together. To infinity and beyond. A descendant of David. A descendant of Solomon. Our passage is talking about whose throne and kingdom will endure forever. To infinity and beyond. Imagine I told you that I have a 1943 penny that I want to give you, a copper penny, and I want to give it to you to build a house. And your response might be, uh, as, you, as you take the penny from me, thank you, Pastor Joe, but as you walk away, you're muttering under your breath. What are you muttering? Some uh, cheapskate. What are you, you give me a penny for my house. But, but then I call you back, hey, hey, it's only one of 40 in existence. This thing is rare. And you're a little bit more impressed with it. And then I say, you know what? It's worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, but actually in January 2019 at the Heritage Auction, one sold for $204,000. Back in 2010, one sold, went for auction evidently for $1.7 billion. And so then you realize that you, you've missed the significance of this 1943 copper penny. It just kind of went right on by you. It's easy for us to miss the significance of what is promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 16. We miss the significance of what is a high watermark in all of biblical revelation, and it is God's promise to establish David's throne forever. Forever. Now I'm going to read verse 16 again. And I'm going to expect you to say some kind of word or give some facial expression of wow. That's great. That's my word, wow. You can use it. But I want from you some sense of gaining the significance of what we find in our passage today. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Did you all let out? Some of you aren't convinced yet? Amazing. Because verse 16 is speaking of whom? Of Jesus Christ. The promises of 2 Samuel 7 are known as the Davidic covenant. This high watermark of Old Testament revelation. Promises that, that are unconditional and eternal. Promises that to set the course of salvation history. It's like amazing. We go to our New Testaments. How many years are we moving forward from David, 2 Samuel 7 to Matthew 1 1? How many years? 
a thousand years. And how does our New Testament start out? How does our New Testament start out? The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Would you read the, the next phrase? The son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we ask, why are David and Abraham specifically mentioned? They're mentioned specifically because of the covenants God made with them. Because of these grand, great promises God made to them. Promises that ultimately pointed to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. How did the Abrahamic covenant end? Through you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And indeed that is what has happened to us in Jesus Christ. Wow. Somebody should start to count how many times I say wow. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of his Father in heaven, where he now rules as king in the hearts of those who believe in him. And at his ascension, we read, this is Acts 1. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on in a cloud received him out of their sight as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus whom has been taken up from you into heaven will come, will come again in just the same way as you watched him go up into heaven. He went up bodily and he will return bodily to earth. And so the angelic message to his disciples, Jesus is going to come again. And we know as we fill in the rest of the story that he is not coming as a lamb to die on a cross, but he is going to come as the lion and establish his rule over all the earth. Yeah. And I believe that in the future when Jesus returns, And in fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, he is going to rule over all the earth and he will restore the kingdom to Israel. Which is to say he will rule in Jerusalem over Israel. And if we go back to Acts 1, I think we see that that's the clear expectation of the disciples before his dissension. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're what? going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so Jesus does not negate the disciples' expectation of his restoring the kingdom to Israel. He rather redirects their attention to other things. As if to say, in the meantime, guys, before that happens, in the enablement of the Spirit, I want you to proclaim me to the ends of the earth. Wow. The theological term for what I ascribe to and what I'm describing here is called what? It's called premillennialism. 
specifically dispensational premillennialism, and I'm not one who's usually given to theological terms, am I? But pre before millennial thousand years, the teaching that after Christ returns to earth, he will rule for a thousand years, and then will come the new heaven and earth. And I think that premillennialism is the best understanding, really, of some of the last chapters of all of Scripture. In particular, Revelation 20. In Revelation 19, we find Christ, when we read of Christ, returning to the earth. And then in chapter 20, what do we read? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And so after the return of Christ, chapter 19, we find this rule of Christ where Satan is thrown into the abyss. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast are his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so those who had died during the tribulation before Christ's return come back to life and reign with him for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life, the unrighteous dead, until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection talking about the righteous and their resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Wow. I'm going to move on and talk about application. We want to apply 2 Samuel 7 to our lives. But before I do, I, I want to say that this, this whole area of end times, and I'm talking about it, and I'm talking about premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, this whole area of eschatology, as you well know, is greatly debated, isn't it? Yeah. Greatly debated, and scholars, good scholars and students disagree, and, and that is okay. Amen. That is okay if we do so humbly. And what I'm giving you this morning is my position, and I'll acknowledge to you that I have more studying to do. And it has been the position and is the position of this church, has been since its inception, way back with Pastor Stelling some 60 years ago. But it's a great area of study, isn't it? Yep, great area of study. Yep. All right, let's talk about application. Let's talk about application. How do we apply? This fact that God's great promises are our great hope. The first application is hope. And let me say, as I talk about application, my first applications are going to come right out of Scripture. So it doesn't get any better than that. In other words, how does Scripture apply what we find in 2 Samuel 7? Isn't that great? I don't have to wade off into unknown territory. It's kind of like, all right, what does Scripture itself do with these promises? It's the fact that they bring great hope. 
That's the way it was with the nation of Israel as they would look back at these promises. These promises to have a king and a kingdom. And so you find as their history moves forward and they find themselves going into exile because of their disobedience to God's word that they look back to the hope that is found in the promises of God. Psalm 89, Ezekiel 36. You find them looking back in the midst of difficulties, at these great promises, and they form the basis of their hope in the midst of difficulties as they're looking into the future. God's great promises are our great hope. Phoenix cartoon. Lucy's talking to Linus. She says, boy, look at it rain. What what if it floods the whole earth? He says, never do that. In the, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And she says, you taking a great load off my mind. And he says, sound theology has a way of doing that. Yeah. When we have good theology, when we understand the promises and precepts of God, it has a way of taking a load off of our mind. Chris, as he led us in worship, alluded to the memorial service last Saturday for Susan White. What a service. And it was filled with what? It was filled with hope. As Paul said, we grieve, but not as those without hope. It's the precious and magnificent promises of God that we build our lives on and fill us with hope in the midst of our difficulties so that we can live in ways that please God. Oh, his precious and magnificent promises. That's exactly what we're seeing in 2 Samuel 7. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, what is 1 Corinthians 15 all about? Resurrection. The resurrection. This great hope. And so Paul concludes, he says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so these promises that we have, this promise here of a coming resurrection, of a ruling king, fill our lives with hope and, and give us purpose so that we live life well. When others crash and burn, those, those promises keep us going. Oh, the significance of promises, the promises of God. Not only do they give us hope, they give us joy. And the two ideas are related. But God's great promises, which are the basis of our great hope, should also be the basis of our great praise. The promises, the hope that we have bring joy to our lives. That's where David goes with it. If you were to read on in 2 Samuel 7, beginning with verse 18, that's where David goes with it. He's just filled with praise. Notice how it starts. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? It brought him to the point where he was king over all of Israel. And then he says, And yet this was insignificant in your eyes. What you've done actually is insignificant in light of what you're promising to do. Oh, Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, oh, Lord. The idea really is this isn't how men usually do it. 
This isn't the normal way things work. Oh God, you've done so much for me already. You've established me as the king of this great nation. And now, beyond that, you're speaking of what you're going to do in the distant future, and not to just the distant future, but to infinity and beyond. Oh, blow my mind. Isn't that where David's at? It's just like, this isn't how people do it. (laughs) And that's for sure. So joy, that's David. Application number three. Oh, it's good to work on application. And the third application is integrity. And this one doesn't directly come from the application of Second Samuel 7. The, the two I just gave you, they do. They're clearly in Scripture, seen there, declared there, really. But the idea is this, that God keeps his promises and we should too. God keeps his word and we should too. We're supposed to be like him, right? And so Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so the importance of our word being our bond, being people of integrity. Are you banking on it with God? We sure are, aren't we? We're banking on it with God. And when it comes to our word, people are banking on us, keeping our word, fulfilling the promises we make. Interesting, uh, you know that a group of us went with Chuck Swindoll to Alaska. And he began his last talk, talking about the challenges of parenting, actually, uh, by quoting from Peggy Noonan. And she wrote this back in 2002, and it's titled, Everybody's Been Shot. And, and the emphasis of her article is, is, you know, quit complaining, making excuses, bellyaching. In a sense, she's bellyaching because she's complaining about how everybody seems to have an excuse for their failures. It's not my fault. And so she starts out this way. There's a small but telling scene in Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down that contains some dialogue that reverberates, at least for me. The movie, as you know, is the Battle of the Bakara Market in Mogadishu, Somalia, in October of 1993. In the scene, the actor Tom Sizemore, playing your basic tough guy U.S. Army Ranger Colonel, is in charge of a small convoy of Humvees trying to make its way back to base under heavy gun and rocket fire. The colonel stops the convoy, takes in some wounded, tears a dead driver out of a driver's seat, and barks at a bleeding sergeant who's standing in shock nearby. Colonel, get into that truck and drive, sergeant. But I've been shot, colonel. Colonel, everybody's shot. Get in and drive. And she says, everybody's shot. Those are great metaphoric words. Everybody's shot. Get in and drive. <laughs> I like that. I like that. We talked about that after. You know, because we seem to have all these excuses and, and like it's so bad for us. And the truth is, folks, everybody's been shot. Nobody goes through this life unscathed. 
And so don't use those things in your life to not fulfill the words you promised to do. Everybody's been shot. Everybody has challenges. And if you find that you're at a place where you can't fulfill them, then go to the person you made the promise to and at least ask them, can I get out of this promise? Because I've made you a promise, and my word is my bond, and I want to live like my God. Amen? We're talking basic, godly, Christian character here. Amen? Everybody shot. Get in and drive. All have our challenges. Get in and do your job. Lewis Smeads, and I'll end with this, has a great statement on promises. This is in your notes. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They, they stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love-grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep their promises they made. I want to say to you that if you have a ship you will not desert, if you have people you will not forsake, if you have causes you will not abandon, then you are like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. Boy, there's a lot of good things to say there. (coughs) Father, we give you praise. Your word is living and active. Thank you that we come together and the heart of the people here is to look to your word, to say, let's go to the book. Precept upon precept, line upon line. Let's go to the word of God, that hunger you put within us, to look at it, to hear it proclaimed and have your spirit who indwells us bring understanding and bring application. We thank you for Second Samuel 7. It's this 1943 copper penny that it's easy to miss the significance of, but yet one of the truly greatest promises in all of Scripture, one of the covenants that the rest of Scripture is hung upon. Father, help us to appreciate the promises you made to David that one of his descendants would sit on a throne forever and to know that that is Jesus Christ and he is going to return and he is going to rule and we're going to be a part of his rule. And even as I say that, my spirit stirred, Father, and we almost should break out into song, Oh, happy day, oh, happy day. So, Father, we thank you for your promises. They bring hope. They bring joy to our lives in the midst of all the challenges and all the difficulties we face. And, Father, may we follow your example and be men and women who keep our promises. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.